Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you have joined us for worship this morning. Uh, We're glad you're able to make it out. I know that we have a great many be praying. We have a great many that are dealing with uh, sickness in our church, and I know because I got texts from about eight of them at seven o'clock this morning. So uh, be praying for all those that are dealing with the the different sicknesses that are going on. And remember, wash your hands early and often, right? And the the fist bump is in full effect here at First Baptist Church in the midst of all of the sickness that's going around. Uh, But know that we're praying for you and uh, we're, we're hoping that we get everybody back sooner than later. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to his word. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I thank you for this day of life that you've given us. Lord, and I do know that there are many that that weren't able to make it to be with us this morning uh, because of illness in their lives, because they're dealing with sickness. Lord, there are are many still that are on the mend and others that even now are here and and still coming back from the the effects of of the different things that are going around. Lord, I pray that uh, you would touch each of those uh, in our number that are dealing with sickness, Lord, that you would place your healing hands of grace upon them and that you bring them back to fullness of health and back to our midst soon. Lord, I pray for each that is in this room, Lord, that you would touch and protect each one from the various sicknesses that are going around and that in your grace, you would watch over them. Lord, I do pray that as we turn our attention now to the truth of your word, that you would speak to us clearly. Lord, I pray that uh, as we we finish up our our consideration of our vision and being faithful to who it is you've called us to be, in this coming year, Lord, that you would help us to faithfully draw together as we consider the reality of our baptism and the Holy Spirit living within us, that we are drawn together, Lord, that we may be many, though we are many, we are one. And Lord, may our vision draw us together and move us forward with strength and with grace. Lord, speak to us in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. So I I was actually thinking of ending the series last weekend, and as I continued to, to consider where we were, I thought that we need one more. And as I was thinking about the, it kind of came about as I was thinking about the, the friends of the man. Remember last week, if you were here, we talked about the, the man who was lowered in down through the roof and had the faithful friends that were so faithful to him that they were willing to do whatever it took to get him to Jesus. And that not only were they faithful, but they were full of faith in believing that Jesus could bring about the wholeness and health that their friend needed. And we talked about how we, as the followers of Christ, need to be willing to tear down anything, to to remove any obstacle that might get between us getting others to Jesus. One of the things that I find so interesting about Jesus as we consider Jesus himself and Jesus' own ministry is that we find that 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 removal of the barriers is actually a two-way street. That, that while we do need to do what we can to get people to Jesus and to get ourselves to Jesus and to move around and through barriers, the, the greatest reality or one of the, the most amazing and stunning truths of the gospel is how far Jesus is willing to go to remove barriers to get to us. I mean, I mean, think about just, we were just a few months past Christmas, but I'm still living in the past. And, and so even the beauty of Christmas, understanding the reality that Jesus, think about this, that Jesus 
the very Son of God, who was present with God in the heavens, condescended, came down to earth, the Creator became the creation, and He removed the greatest barrier there was as far as proximity and distance, right? Like, we could not get to heaven to Him. He came to us. And further, He went beyond that by removing the barrier of our sin by dying on the cross, removed the barrier of death by rising from the grave, and destroyed all of the different things that we use to divide ourselves one from another and from Him. That is the gospel. That is amazing. That that it's not all on us trying to get to Jesus, but that Jesus is in fact trying to get to us. But I think that one of the things that we struggle with as humanity is that we like our our confines. We like our barriers. We, we like, we like having walls. There's something, there's something safe to us about, about feeling constricted a little bit. We like that. I, I noticed it in West Virginia. In West Virginia, um, I, I struggled with the mountains. Everybody always says to me when I t- tell them that I lived in West Virginia for a lot of years, oh, it's so beautiful there. And I'm like, Like, what do you mean? The mountains are just so gorgeous. And I, I love driving through the mountains. And I'm like, it's great if you go through the mountains and get to the other side and out. The problem comes when you live there for a while. Those of us that have lived in the flatlands all our lives don't realize this. But when you live in the mountains and you've lived in the flat your whole life, you begin to feel contained. You sit there and you're looking and you see what's around that corner. I don't know what's coming. Here in Indiana, we can look at the flat and if something is coming at us, we know to run. If the bear is coming around the corner, you don't know till the bear is eating you. Right? Like, I don't know what's around that corner. I don't know what's coming at me or what I'm going to. And so for me, I felt very contained. But what was interesting to me was the feeling of all the West Virginians as I talked to them. They said, you know what? I really don't like being out in the flatlands. I feel exposed. I don't know, I don't know who's coming at me and and there's nothing to keep between me and them. There's nothing protecting me there. There's there's nothing that keeps me safe and and allows me to feel like, like I'm comforted and like I'm no longer in harm's way. And, And I think even those of us in the flatlands, though, though, while we're in the mountains, maybe a little bit too long, we get to the point where, where they begin to close in on us. All of us, per, like, we like looking at things, but we like having houses, right? We, we like being inside. We like looking things from a safe distance. We like walls. We, we like having the safety of distance. Because no one knows what enemies or dangers might be out there. And I think this is a big problem in our culture. And I've talked about this before and I'll continue talking about it because it's a big issue today. We, we, are, we are an enemy-making machine in our world today. We, we like knowing and advertising what we're against. And, and, and to be completely honest, even when we advertise what we're for, we still advertise what we're against. I, I, there's a whole, whole theory on why that is, and I have my own theory. I, I, I'll be honest with you. Part of it is, I think, the safety of a screen, that, that we're able to hide ourselves behind the walls of the internet. And so we can say things online that we would never, ever, ever, ever in our wildest dreams say to someone's face. And what the internet has done as we continue to go on, and, and, as, and, and our world and the tech and, and everything that we've got, it, it, is, it has shrunk in the world to an extent But it has also made the world infinitely more scary because now not only do I have access to everything, but everybody has access to me. 
And so I find that we are continually building up the walls. And the problem comes when those walls are, are not just for our protection, but that we might, we, we might go on the offensive. And I, I think that even the reality of those walls is counterproductive to faith. Christ is our salvation. He is our protection. And do we trust him in the midst of the world? He has called us to, 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 to go into the world, that we are to live amongst those that would harm us, to pray for those who persecute us, to love those who are our enemies. Do we take that seriously? And beyond that, let's just consider and hear. Do we understand that those of us that are in Christ are no longer eligible, even eligible to be enemies? We are no family. We are one. That's what the whole truth of a vision is about. It's not just about looking and seeing where we're going, but understanding who we are together as one. And Paul talks about that. The interesting thing is I could have gone to any number of the Pauline letters and could have preached this very same sermon. Apparently, just, just to give us a little bit of comfort, this isn't just a First Baptist Church of Seymour issue because it was also a church of the Colossians issue and it was also a church of the Ephesians issue and it was also a church of the Philippians issue and here we are 2,000 plus years later and we still have the issue. But I think we need to work on it. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, if you haven't already turned there. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. And it says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if anyone has grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we have this pretty robust passage that, that really kind of gives us a picture of the development and the progression of the Christian life and how it's supposed 
to go, how it's supposed to, to draw us together, how it's supposed to reframe how we live our lives, how we see each other, and how we live in the world. This is the vision in a, a condensed package here. Not, not just for our church. Sure, our, our vision is valuable, but our vision is only valuable in as much as it points us to Jesus and the vision that he has for us through his scripture. And I think this, this does a nice job of drawing it all together as it draws us together. And Paul continually, as he talks through this passage, is talking about our need to keep our eyes on Christ. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's, it's a theme that we could have gone again to any number of passages because this is a, a theme that comes up over and over and over again. Hey, you need to focus on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed here. Mold your life to his. See him. Do what he did. Go where he went. Do what he did. What I find interesting about this passage, though, is where Paul starts it. Paul says, since you then have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with God. You know what he's talking about there? And he, he, he gives two very key elements, that, two, two key words or, or phrases there that, that point us to the imagery he's trying to get across. He says, since you have been raised with Christ... Because you have died. This is an image of baptism. Paul is, is, is imploring us, hey, remember your baptism. Now, I, I'm not here to debate the merits of different types of bath, baptism, but I will tell you that this is part of the reason that we as Baptists hold to baptism by immersion. Because you see throughout the New Testament this idea of, of, and the imagery of, of being buried and raised and coming to life. As Paul brings those things, he's, as he's talking about, and, and what's interesting about this is he's talking about liberty in Christ. He's talking about the freedom that we have in Christ and not using it to our own advantage, but instead using it to, for the glory of God and for the advantage of the world in which we live, for each other. That's, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because when we think of freedom, we think of freedom to do what we want when we want because we want to. The interesting thing is that Christ, in Christ, our freedom is not just so we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, but so that we are free to, do, to not do what we want. In our sin nature, we can do whatever we want. We're actually bound to serve self. That's the problem. It is only in Christ that we have the ability, the will, to choose something else. So Paul is, is, is talking about this, this idea of, of freedom in Christ that comes about through our baptism, through the new life that comes through his grace in us. Now, Baptist has been a, baptism has been a central feature of the church since the church's inception. I mean, we could even go back. It, it predated the church. It was one of those things that was part of, of the, the Judaic faith. Think, think about John the Baptist. Do you realize that John the Baptist was not ev an evangelical Baptist Christian, right? I just, I sorry, I just ruined someone's day there. But John the Baptist was not actually a Baptist in our sense. When I found that out at about 12 years old, it, it ruined my day. Because John the Baptist, that was like my key, that was my key thing for defending why everybody should be Baptist. Because John, the cousin of Jesus, was Baptist too. Duh. Why would you be anything else? Truth is that John the Baptist wasn't, wasn't an evangelical Christian, per se, at this point. And he, he certainly wasn't a Baptist in, in the way that we think. 
His, his form of baptism was something historically that had been given and you can find in the law. And it was intended to, to symbolize one's humble repentance and the cleansing of the stain of sin. Now, we still use that today, but it's, it's a different part of the baptism for us. It's just a piece of it. It was a ritual cleansing, right? And we can go all the way back into the Old Testament and see instances of that. The leper comes to the, the prophet, and the prophet says, hey, you need to go cleanse this many times in the river, and you'll be clean. That's the cleansing. It was a ritual thing. It was part of what they did. And, and we even see it in the life of Jesus. You know, the reason that Jesus was baptized was not that he needed to be cleansed from the stain of sin. Baptism was also something that was done as a ritual to confirm calling, to indicate that someone had, had gone from something that they were doing and who, who they were into this new thing. So it's always had this picture of newness, of cleansing, of, of moving forward into a new form of life. So we see baptism back in the old days. But then we see Jesus kind of transform it, right? Jesus adopts it and brings it into the, the Christian faith. In the Great Commission, Jesus forever links baptism with our faith. Because remember, the Great Commission is to go into all the world... Making disciples of all nations and what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Baptism then is the first step of many in being molded into the image of Christ. It is the first step, it is meant to be one of the first steps of obedience that that plunges us into the faith walk. Propelling us forward. Ultimately, we know that as we keep going through the New Testament, that baptism replaced circumcision as the primary means of identifying Christian followers. It was the sign, it was the sign, the definitive sign that that I have become a Christian. We can go back to the Dadachi, which is the earliest manuscript that we have of how we believe the apostles taught followers of Jesus, and you had to go through a a period of initiation, and once you got through that period of initiation, then you were baptized. Usually it was pretty short, but that baptism was the key indicator that I am now a member of the family of faith, much as circumcision was the, the, the mark for the Jews. I don't know about you all, but I'm glad of the change, right? Following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, however, we have baptism taking on an even greater meaning. Because now it points us to the reality that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. That we are, we, we are living in new life through him. It's a physical representation of a spiritual reality. I get emotional every time we do a baptism here. I don't know if you had the chance to see the video that we have uh, available on Facebook. I'm going to see if I can have Nathan put it on, uh, on our website. I should have done it this week. But Titus Parker was baptized last Sunday, last Sunday, and uh, it was great. I, I, if you've seen the paper, you, you can look in the, in the messenger and the article that I write in the messenger every week, they put in the paper, and they put it in its fullness in the paper, this whole thing about baptism, with a picture of Titus Parker at his baptism. Like, what small town paper does that? <laughs> right? You can't get any more Christian. But what was great about the baptism was how it played out because we were up in the front and, and Titus is so excited about being baptized. And even at the beginning, I've got my arms on his shoulder and I'm like, hey, Titus, you know, why are you so excited? I just want to be baptized so bad. And, and what you all don't get to see or experience out there is that he is so excited when he says that, that he is literally shaking. He's so excited to be baptized. 
And I'm like, that is awesome right there. So I'm, I'm feeling it then. And, and we get him into the water. And Titus is like, he, Nathan had come over and practiced it with him. And so we get him in the water. And I'm trying to say the words. And I'm trying to say the words. If you watch the video, Pastor Nathan's trying to hold him up. Because Titus is going. <laughs> he's trying to get back in. The, he's ready to do this thing. We baptize him. We get him out of the water. And Titus, you can hear him on the video say, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. That, that boy, I think, has a better understanding of what baptism about, is about than many times we do. He understands that there is something special and amazing and grand that is happening here. He understands, and I talked to him, so I know this to be the case. He understands that he is identifying himself and his faith in Jesus Christ through this act. And he is pumped about it. He is ready to live for Jesus. And you and I should do the same thing. We should be excited. We need to remember our baptism. And when we see a baptism here in the church, we, we should be empowered and energized by the fact that we know that that same life that they are being raised to live in is ours in Christ as well. We are new. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. That's the beauty of baptism and the symbol through Jesus. Our, our sin that divided us from God the Father, wasn't just simply washed away. It was destroyed. It was buried and left in the grave. It is dead and rotting. No longer within us. No longer with power and eternal sway over us because Christ has destroyed the barrier that kept us from Him. This Look back is meant to both draw us together. Because as Paul says in another place, that we are one body through one spirit and one baptism. For we are one body. He says that here as well. As we get farther on, we're going to look at it a little bit later. But he says, let the the peace of Christ rule in your hearts in verse 15. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Jesus rose from the grave, brought us up to new full life in him. Christ, in his example and his model of life and love, provided us with a new way to execute life in this world. So we must keep our focus in light of our baptism, in light of of the death and the burial of Christ, and the death and burial of our sin, and the raising to walk in newness of life. In light of our understanding of that, we must fix our eyes on Christ. Keep our focus firmly fixed on him. Paul encourages the Colossians to direct both their emotions and their intellect on Christ. Both their emotions and their intellect. Verse 1, he tells them to set your hearts on things above. Verse 2, set your minds on things above. He is differentiating. The words have different meanings and, and the usage is, in, is intentional. And, and I think one of the things that we run into from time to time is that, that we want to focus one or the other. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, as, as Baptists, we are big on the academic intellectual side. We, we want to parse through what the Bible says. We want to know it. We want to understand it. We want this deep academic understanding. We want to break it down piece by piece so that we can really truly know what it says. So that we can make sure that we're living in line with that. That's not necessarily bad. 
But at the same time, we, if we really want to see a changed life, we have to engage not just our head, but also our hearts. There is, hear me, there is meant to be, God does not just want your intellect, he wants your emotions as well. He wants you emotionally connected to him. It is not wrong to have an emotional connection and response when you consider the grace and greatness of Jesus Christ. I would argue that it is actually needed. That God intended it that way. That God doesn't, doesn't just want part of you, he wants all of you. And so our hearts need to be directed at him as well. Why? Because our life is now in him All of who we are is rooted in who Christ is and what we've done. The truth is, is what we love and what we know will determine who we will be and what we will do. What we love combined with what we know will determine who we will be and what we will do every time. Our focus needs to be on Jesus The key to living the life to which Christ has called us then and for which he died is knowing how he lived and attempting to align the reality of our lives and our love with what we've seen in him. Think about Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It tells us that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith goes on to talk about how, how for the joy set before him it endured the cross. And why do we consider that? So that we might be encouraged rather than discouraged. Talking about the being surrounded by, by a great cloud of witnesses. The whole point of that passage is focus on Jesus so you might be propelled into the life he has called you to live. That you too might faithfully live as the fathers of the faith and mothers of the faith have lived before you. If we're going to live the life to which Christ has called us, we must focus on aligning our lives with the life and love that we've seen in him. And part of that is we must be aware of the pieces of our earthly nature that are going to attempt to creep up from time to time and to distract and derail us. To to draw our focus away from Christ. He says it there in verses 5 through 8. He talks about this baptism, understanding that we have died with Christ. We have been raised to live a new life. We focus on him in the heavenly realms. And and we we follow him with our lives. Then he says in verse 5 to 8 that we need to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And then I love how he ends this, which is idolatry. You realize that all sin ultimately comes down in one form or another to idolatry. Because ultimately sin, particularly when it focuses on the pleasures of our own lives, shows that that there is a God sitting on our throne, but we're taking up that throne space right now. We are worshiping ourselves. We are offering sacrifices to ourselves. If there's a false God that, that threatens to derail And distract us more often than not, is it not our own heart's desires? Is it not our own priorities and preferences? That when we come to a point when they fail to align exactly with the priorities and preferences of Christ, now we've got a real challenge. But we need to remember whose we are. We must remember the new life that has been offered to us in Christ. And when those things begin, those pieces of, of the past begin to creep in, up in us, we need to be reminded that they are dead and we need to put them back in the grave where they belong.
think something for us to consider and keep in mind as we think about this passage is that while our hearts and our minds are to be focused heavenward, our lives must always need be lived on earth. We focus our, our, our hearts and minds heavenward, our lives must be lived on earth. One of the things that we often see in the church in conjunction with salvation and baptism is we then begin to focus so explicitly on heaven and and this one day. And our goal then is to get people to heaven, to get ourselves to heaven. I I am saved because I want to get to heaven and away from hell. We we have this polar dichotomy that we think about that that I don't want to go to hell. I do want to go to heaven. And so I'm going to focus my mind on heaven and getting myself there. I'm just trying to, so which, which then leads to us just kind of passing through here. But there's a whole lot of stuff that we're supposed to do while we're here. There's work that needs to be done. Perhaps you've heard this. That at times, our, our deep focus on heaven makes us so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. That our, our head, and that can be conceptually, that we are so busy thinking about these deep theological, I actually had a conversation, I believe it was on Thursday night with some members of our personnel board, that, that we can come to a point that we are so bogged down by intellectual theological things that we are of no earthly good. I would argue to, to you this, that, that anything that we ultimately know about Christ should ultimately lead to a change in how we live our lives. Any good theology is a practical theology. What we know about God should impact how we live in the world in which he has placed us. While our hearts and minds are to be focused heavenwards, we've got to live here in the meantime. This may not be our long-term home. We, we may be exiles or missionaries, if you will, on this planet. But we need to make a difference. We need to stop thinking ourselves as prisoners that need to escape. We are missionaries that have a job to do. Remember, to live as Christ is to bring the kingdom of God into the here and now. The new life that we've been raised to live, we are meant to live it here and to live it now to make a difference in this place at this time. Think even about Jesus and his call. I was considering, and I was looking through different passages that talked about this, and think just about the Sermon on the Mount for a minute. It is the the most complete sermon we have, if you will, that Jesus gave. And throughout the entirety of it, Jesus is talking about this heavenly-minded life, this reframing of how we see life and how we live. And as he brings it all together, he gives two things in chapter 6 that I find incredibly pertinent to today. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, Jesus tells them how to pray, right? Pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Note that the prayer is not, Hey, our Father which art in heaven, your name is holy. Thy kingdom come and get me out of here. I gotta go. It is bad here. Have you seen this place? Take me to your kingdom. I feel like sometimes that's what, what, we, what we start praying. We ask God to help us to escape the realities of the world. But that is not what Christ told us to pray. Christ instead told us to pray that he would bring his kingdom to earth. That his kingdom would come. That his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which one is likely to reach the world and have the greatest impact? 
Isn't us focusing up in the sky and the fact that the world will be really a lot better once we die? Woo, that's exciting. Or would it be focusing on the fact that we have a God that is so big and so great that he sent his son that even death brings about life and this world and the death that it brings can be undone and you can find life, you can find hope, you can find restoration, you can find it here and now that we have the power through his Holy Spirit and his presence in our lives to bring heaven to earth. Jesus goes on in Matthew 6.33 to encourage his listeners not to worry about the physical realities of the world, but instead to seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you as well. We're to be seeking to live and bring about his kingdom here. The Sermon on the Mount then is a lesson on how to live a heavenly-minded life, heavenly-hearted life in the here and now that we might make a difference in this world for his glory. Our alignment with his kingdom vision should begin to create cohesion between us as his people because it's not your vision or my vision, it's his vision. Baptism. Baptism, again, is then the first step of what will be a lifetime of attempting to imitate and be molded into the image of Christ, to do what he did to bring his grace and his glory to the earth that is so deeply in need of that. The love of Christ is to be lived in and lived out. The love of Christ is to be lived in and lived out. That's two different things there. That, That as we live in the love of Christ, we understand how it then applies to us. As we live it out, It impacts the way that we manifest that love to the world around us. That's the functional difference. Living in the love is how it impacts me personally. Living out the love is how it impacts the way I see and interact with the world around me. The love of Christ should redefine how we see ourselves and each other. It changes the game. It changes the filters we use to define who is in, who is out, what is good, what is bad. Have you filled out any applications recently? Anybody fill out an application here in, in the last, like, year or so? Oh, come on. Like, you, put, you sign up for anything online, and they want, like, 50 million different things, right? You fill out an application. Even the simplest of things, they want a, they want a, a bevy of different informations, right? And I've, I've had to fill out quite a few for a variety of things here through the church. And it's amazing to me the different designations and distinction we use to define ourselves. I remember a time where you, like, you put your name, you put your gender, you put your nationality, and you moved on with life, Right? Now they want everything. They want every piece of information they possibly could have on you to make sure it's, it's you. Right? They, they want to know your nationality. You want to know, they want to know your gender. They want to know your ethnicity. They want to know your income level. They want to know your religion. They want to know your age. They want to know your education level. They want to know your legal record. They want to know how many kids you have or do you have no kids. They want to know if you're married. They want to know if you're single. And, and that's, that's just to get a Facebook account. Right? Like, that's not anything significant. I mean, really think about it. Think about how many different distinctions and designations that we have that differentiate us one from another. I mean, I don't don't think that they're necessarily bad in and of themselves. I think the problem comes when we use those same designations to determine who is in and who is out. Who is acceptable and who is unacceptable. Who is worthy 
and who is unworthy, who is friend and who is foe, who is us and who is them. I, I keep coming back to this. I can't, I can't escape it because I think it's one of the greatest traps of the modern church, the whole us-them dynamic. But then we see it right here in Colossians, do we not? We get down to verse 11 as Paul has already talked about the different sin nature things we've got to deal with. And then he talks about this differentiation that we have in the midst of this. Here there is no Gentile or Jew. There is no circumcision or uncircumcision. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. The designations used to define us, to define who is in and who is out. Who is us and who is them are done away with in Christ. They no longer are definitive. In life, think about even Christ. In life, Christ had no patience for such designations. For sinner and saint, holy and unholy, circumcised, uncircumcised, Gentile, Jew. Jesus seemed to, by and large, really not care. It really was not a determining factor for him in the long run. In his death, though, he goes a step further and he destroys them completely. He opens up avenues for us to become and belong as one. Barriers built by birth. In Christ, we are one family. We are one kingdom. Barriers built by ceremony or tradition in Christ, our faith is in Him, in Him alone, understanding that in Him, our salvation is found. Our salvation is not located and discovered through our own piety and our own merits, but through His. Barriers built by societal standards. It talks about Scythians and barbarians. and In those days, Scythians were thought to be ignorant. Barbarians were, were thought to be classless without understanding, whereas the Greeks and the Hebrews themselves were thought to be high-class, educated. They were civilized. And while those designations will never go away, in Christ they no longer define us, nor, they did, nor should they determine how we treat or view others. In Christ we see others as Christ see others, sees others. In and through Christ, we love others as Christ loves others. And we no longer have the right to build up barriers, walls, if you will, that keep others out and others in. Because Christ has opened up the door to all. Because he died for all. We then together are God's chosen people. It says in verse 12, Therefore is God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we, all of us, are God's chosen people. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, through our, our union, through baptism, through his death, burial, and resurrection, we are no longer are an us or a them. We are a we. His people, then, are our people. The love of Christ redirects how we treat those people. 
Verse 12 through 14, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So we we have discussions periodically here at the church about what entails church clothes. These are the only church clothes that matter. These are the only church clothes that matter. These things that that, that I'm wearing out externally, these are just coverings so that you're not embarrassed by my nakedness. That's what they are. And it ultimately harkens back to the sin nature. We wear clothes because we broke things when we were able to go up about as we were. We, we ruined how things were. We wear clothes not because clothes are fancy. And we may enjoy them, but that's not the purpose. It's not, not to come dressed all high and mighty the, or, or to, to come dressed more casual. That, that really doesn't matter. What we wear externally should not matter. What matters is the clothes we put on internally and the way that that then impacts the way the world sees us because of how we treat them. These are the church clothes that matter. Compassion. Do we truly care when we see the realities of the world around us and the people that come through our doors, the people that we rub shoulders with with here and at work and in the world, do we actually care about the difficulties that are in their lives? Does it matter to us? Kindness. Are we willing to to reach out and to act upon that compassion? Is the love that we feel in our hearts and the concern that we have, is is it enough of a motivation that we will treat someone, that that compassion will impact how we then treat them and what we do for them? Humility. Are we willing to live as Christ and see others as more important than self? Gentleness. Forgiveness. And love. Love. All of these, when you put them together and put them on, result in us loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. One of the greatest of all commandments. And our lives in Christ should refocus our attention from simply getting what I want to sacrifice, sacrificing to give for others that they might have what they need. It is only through loving each other as Christ loves us that we will come together as one body, as one family, to impact the world in which we live. And that brings us to a point of conclusion. Ultimately, the greatest message we will preach will be the lives of love we live together. I can't escape it. Christ said it, did he not? That this, this is how they are going to know you are my disciples. And how is it that they're going to know that we're his disciples? Someone say it. How will they know that we are his disciples? By our love one for another. So what does the world see when they look at First Baptist Church of Seymour? What does this community, you know, we can talk about the church nationwide, the church worldwide, but I'm going to be really honest with you for a moment, okay? I am not concerned, ultimately, at the moment, with what other churches do. You know why? Because I'm not accountable for that church. Let's be clear. I'm not concerned about being accountable to you. I'm concerned about being accountable for you. Because someday when I stand before Christ, when, when I, as one of your pastors stand before Christ, I will not just answer for my life. I will answer for what I have said to you and how I've directed you as a pastor. So I am concerned about the love that we manifest in the way that we live out the love of Christ in the world. 
Are, what does, so what does the world see when they look at First Baptist Church? When they hear the name First Baptist Church of Seymour, what does it conjure? Does it conjure a presence of peace in a warring world? Does it, does it conjure images of a people of compassion and grace? Does it conjure images of self-sacrifice? I would argue with you. I would argue with you that yes, it does. But may that not be a reason for us to set back on our laurels, but a reason for us to drive together, to drive forward, to draw closer, that we might reach more people as we spread out in the world in which we live. May we be a presence of peace. May we be a people of joy. A people that so compassionately loves one another that we come together in song, in all kinds of song, in all kinds of dress, from all different walks of life, from all different nationalities, that we come together and lift up our hearts and voices as one in celebration and thankfulness to the glory of Jesus Christ for the great work that he has done in reframing us and redirecting us in order for us to be faithful as the church, we must allow our shared vision to focus our hearts and minds on Christ so that we might live his love as he intended together for each other and for the world in which we live. May we be faithful to his call in our lives and may we see him be faithful to us in bringing about a harvest. Father God, I thank you so much for your glory and your grace. I thank you for the great love that you have given us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would be a gospel presence of peace in the world in which you've placed us. And Lord, I pray that as we reach out to the world with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with love, and forgiveness, that we would see all the more coming to Christ, that we would see more Tituses that come to the waters of baptism, excited that they are entering into a new life, excited when they come out knowing that there is a life of purpose before them. And may we, though we might have been saved for many years, Lord, may we be reminded today of our baptism. May we be reminded of our shared unity. God, may we remove any dividers that, that are separating us one from another. May we seek to forgive wrongs that, that are separating us one from another. And may we seek in love to come together as one body that we might be your presence in this world, holy and acceptable, your people, your family of faith. God, work and move in and through us through the power of your shed blood. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.